Well, good morning again. We'll be continuing our series going through the book of Esther this morning. We'll be in Esther chapter 6. You're welcome to turn there on your smartphones. Your own Bible is also printed for you in the ESV on page 10 of your bulletin there. And as you're turning, let's go to God together in prayer. Now, gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for revealing yourself to us in words that we might know you, that we might know your truth, that we might know the glorious grace that you offer to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Father, we pray that as we come together before your word this morning, that you would open it up to us, that you would show us, Lord, more and more of who you are and how much you love us. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you a crazy story about a guy named Henry Ziegland. Henry Ziegland lived in the late 1800s, early 1900s, and he was in a relationship with this lady. He lived in Texas, and one day he decided enough was enough, and he walked out on his girlfriend. Her brother was so mad, so upset that in a fit of rage, he hunted him down at his home there, pulled out a gun, and shot him. Thinking that he had actually killed somebody in this fit of rage, the brother then turned the gun on himself and took his own life. And it turns out he was a bad shot that he got himself, but he missed Henry. So what happened is the bullet grazed Henry and lodged in a tree right behind him. Henry went on to live his life. 20 years later, he's looking at that tree. He's like, you know what? I want to take that tree down. So instead of doing what most people would do, you know, axes or saws, this was the 1913, so apparently there was a lot of it about, he got some dynamite. Strapped it around the tree, lit the fuse, stood back, tree explodes, wood goes everywhere, and something really hard hits him in the head and kills him. At the autopsy, it turns out it's that bullet. So his brother, his, the guy's girl's brother wasn't that bad of a shot. He was just really late, apparently. What a crazy story. What a crazy coincidence. Isn't that, isn't that nuts? One theologian I read said that coincidence is God's way of choosing to remain anonymous. And Esther 6 is one of those things we're going to see full of such crazy coincidences that you just have to see how much God is choosing to remain in the background and anonymous. So as we've seen, Esther is a study in living in empire. What we're calling empire, is it's a culture that wants to assimilate you. It's a culture that wants to change you. It's a predatory type culture that seeks to make you in its mold. When I say empire, I'm not talking about governments. I'm not talking about background. Behind all those things, this, this predatory, dogmatic culture that wants everyone to be the same. Very much like our culture. It's very predatory, very dogmatic towards unbelievers in its beliefs. So where we are in the book of Esther right now is we are between two feasts. Esther's had one feast where she's kind of got her courage up and kind of got greased the skid, so to speak, to get Xerxes ready to hear her request because all of her people are under the edict of death. They're all going to die 11 months in the future because of this edict, and she is in a position providentially to step up and help out, and so she's starting that process. She invites him to a second banquet, and that's going to happen later. But in the meantime, Haman goes home, the bad guy in the story, and he decides that he wants to go ahead and take care of Mordecai now. So Esther's plan may save her people, 
but her adopted father is a dead man walking because he threatened Haman's idol. We saw last chapter that when Haman walked by, Mordecai wasn't afraid of him. Mordecai wasn't intimidated by him. Mordecai didn't bow down or cow or anything, and that just made Haman so angry. Haman needed to feel important, needed to feel significant. Mordecai didn't give it to him, so he wants to destroy him. Because empire is all about getting attention. Empire is all about feeling important. Empire is all about having significance. Empire grasps for glory. That gets us to our theme for today. Here's how we're going to approach this text when we get to it is this. Empire thirsts for glory, but we can rest in Jesus' glory. So with that in mind, let's read the first section here. Esther chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. This is God's Word. And on that night the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai? For this. And the king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So, our story starts out, the king is having trouble sleeping, so he calls for the book of his glory. These are the chronicle of his reign. It's utterly boring, except it's most likely edited to reflect well on him. Archaeologists and historians have actually found books like this. You can actually read them if you want to. They are utterly boring. Or if you're a big Old Testament fan, as you read through the Old Testament historical books of 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles, every once in a while they'll say, if you want to, for more information, go see the books of the Chronicles of the Kings, right? That's these kind of things. These are the actual royal record, kind of like a court trial transcript. So Xerxes, here he is late at night. He can't sleep, so he decides to turn on his assistant and watch them flip through the annals, basically, so he can get some rest. And it just so happens, pure coincidence, that it's the part about Mordecai years earlier, years earlier, saving his life. And Xerxes remembers that event. He says, hey, how is he rewarded? You see, Persian kings were known for really lavishly rewarding their faithful people. Real security as an ancient monarch was not a thing. You were constantly in danger of assassination, even a powerful king like Xerxes. In fact, Xerxes will go on to be killed in his sleep by his own guards. So having security was something you tried to build, and you did that by lavishly rewarding any kind of loyalty so people would rather have you alive than dead, basically. And so he's really missed something here. He has missed out. He has dropped the ball. He's got to fix this. But it also shows Xerxes, some, Xerxes excuse me, something about Mordecai's character. Mordecai has been slighted. For years he's been slighted, and yet he has served faithfully and honorably. God is putting the pieces in place so that when the plot is revealed, Xerxes is predisposed to like Mordecai and to see, he has served me faithfully without reward. How can he be a threat to us? And so it just so happens that because of his insomnia, this man who's a dead man walking because Haman is going to kill him is now the object 
of the king's concern. I mean, don't you just love the timing here? I mean, Haman has the gallows built. Haman is on his way to ask the king for permission to kill him. And God is going to save Mordecai's life through insomnia. I love that. I mean, how often do you think we've been delivered by God and not even known it? I mean, here's how it kind of works for me. Maybe you can relate to this. You know, this wonderful person in front of me, because I'm a pastor, I can't say what I really think, gets in front of me and goes like five under the speed limit, which is like the worst sin possible, right? Especially if I'm in a hurry and I can't get around. I'm like, I got a Sycamore sticker in the back of my car. I can't honk. I'm not in Boston, so you can't honk. It's, not, it's like not as, you know, it's a big deal down here. It's not a big deal up there. Okay, don't honk. Just sit there and seethe, right? But because this person is in front of me going slow, the accident happens in front of me, not to me, when the other moron runs the red light. How often has God use something like that to save you. And you don't even know. That's what God does here. And Esther 6 reminds us that God so often likes to just kind of be behind the scenes, take care of things anonymously through ordinary events. So Xerxes finds out this is hap- this, he's dropped this ball and Xerxes is on it. It brings him glory and it brings Mordecai glory for him to fix this publicly. So he's going to make it happen. He wants it to be special. He wants to know, let me, let me get some help on this. Hey, who's in the court right now? Who happens to be there? We don't know what time it is. I mean, it just says he's having trouble sleeping. We can assume it's the wee hours of the morning. We don't know. But it just so happens that Haman is right there. His wife and his friends at the end of last chapter said, hey, kill Mordecai tomorrow. So tomorrow go get permission from the king to do it. So Haman comes, and he is so anxious. He wants to be first in line, even though he's the royal vizier. He's like Jafar, remember, from Aladdin. He can cut the line. He doesn't have to wait. But he wants to be first thing on on, uh, Xerxes' agenda that day. So he's there waiting. Finds out, and Xerxes says, hey, bring in Haman. Let's get Haman's opinion on this. How should we we reward Mordecai? Well, let's see how that goes together, looking at glory's fantasy in verses 6 through 10. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head the royal crown is set. And let, and let the robes and the horse be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. And let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. And let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry! Take the robes and the horse, as you have said, and do so to Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. I love the ironic timing and coincidence here, don't you? I mean, it's starting to get funny to the reader at this point. While Haman is finalizing his plans to kill Mordecai, the king is initiating a plan to honor Mordecai. And you sit back and man, this is going to be better than a NASCAR crash right here. It's going to be great. So Xerxes asks Haman the question of verse 6. What should be done for the man whom the king delights to honor? 
And I love just the literary value of this, if you've been paying attention. So it's just a beautiful literature here. If you remember back in chapter 3, when Haman brings this plan to kill all the Jews in Persia, he doesn't say, I want to kill all the Jews in Persia. He says, there's a certain people who don't fit in. He kind of lays it out, and he never names them. And Xerxes is like, well, that sounds really bad. Yeah, take care of that. And here, all of a sudden, Xerxes there's a certain man I really want to honor. It doesn't say who it is. I love that, that irony there the author puts in. And Haman, you got to love this. Haman, his idol is self-love. His idol is self-worth. And he hears this, and you can, and you can just see his own mind. He's like, ooh, pour some sugar on me. This is about me right here, isn't it? I know it. I just know it. Remember last chapter? Why was Haman so upset? Because when Mordecai wasn't scared, wasn't intimidated, wasn't deferential, it attacked his idol. Haman needs to be needed. Haman needs to feel significant. He needs to be intimidated, or intimidating, excuse me. He needed that kind of esteem to feel like somebody. He assumes he's the greatest person around. That's his idol. He worships himself all the time, and now he's like, Xerxes is going to worship me too. He's almost giddy with excitement. His pride and his self-love are about to be celebrated. And it's this self-love that makes Haman so dangerous. It's this self-love that makes him so deadly. The playwright T.S. Eliot said it this way. I put this on the front of your bulletin. We have a slide too. He said this, that half of the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They do not mean to do harm. They are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. And isn't that our time? I mean, that, that is the culture of empire, man, this dogmatic, predatory culture that thinks it is the epitome of human achievement. They even admit that they feel this way by the arrogance of their own terms. If you don't agree with them, it's because you are asleep, because they are the woke. And if you don't wake up, and if you don't get on board with this predatory culture, then you get to be canceled, because you're not woke. You're not as worthy. You won't worship our idol. So Haman hears this. He's been fantasizing about this, and he answers Xerxes' question with this exquisite single man parade. He wants to go all through the Capitol Mall so all the tourists can see him. He wants to go by the old executive office building so all the federal workers, especially Mordecai, can see him in this parade. He wants to show off his glory. See, the writer here just lays open Haman's idolatrous heart. I mean, Haman has all this wealth. If you remember back in chapter 2 or 3, I can't remember, 3, where he, he offers to make this incredibly large donation to the treasury if Xerxes will go ahead and kill this people. Fabulously wealthy. He's the Jafar of the kingdom, second in command, all the power. All of his success wasn't enough to fill his thirsty soul. He wanted glory. He wanted significance. Notice how he forgets all the courtesy. Every other time we've had people talking to Xerxes, it's always been, well, if it pleased the king and all these court things, he just jumps right in. And notice how he repeats that phrase three different times. The man whom the king delights to honor. He's like chewing on it, man. He's been there. He is savoring that image. And there's something a little deeper going on here. Persians believed in their mythology that the royal trappings, specifically the robe of the king, the bed of the king, and the horse of the king, contained power. Now, let's go back a little bit. Remember Christmas? 
the wise men, what do we call them in the original language, remember? Magi. The magi do weird, crazy things, and so we get our word magic from that. So the king, and that's Persian. So the king's robes, the king's horse, the king's stuff contained royal magic. And if you put the robe on, some of that magic seeped into you. You could be kingly. You could be Xerxes-like. And so what Haman is asking, he's like, make me be as close to being king as I possibly can. Make me feel like I think you must feel. Give me that king power. Let me be like you, and then I will matter. Then my life will make sense. And here's where those of us in the church need to get, really, need to get real. Haman jumps right into this because he's obviously mentally played with this fantasy before. He's already been there in his mind numerous times. And so when it popped up in the real world, when it started to coalesce, is this happening? Is this happening? He just jumped in with both feet. Oh, dear flock, this is why as Christians, we need to ask the Holy Spirit to help us keep our thought life on a diet, if you will. There are certain places that we just cannot let our minds go. Certain what-ifs, fantasies we play with, And should such a situation start to coalesce in real life, our our resolve has been depleted because we've actually jumped in mentally so many times we can end up falling into some serious sin that we never thought we would. Well, back to Esther. So the king loves Haman's idea. Let's have him pray it around like the king. I love that. Even better. Instead of one of the princes, let's have you, Haman, you do it. You lead the horse around for Mordecai. Don't you wish that the Holy Spirit had given us some inspired illustrations? (laughs) I would love to see Haman's face right now. And you have to ask at this point, I mean, is Xerxes kind of dumb? Is he so out of touch that he doesn't remember the edict? I mean, he calls him Mordecai the Jew. And when the edict went out, it said the Jews. I mean, that's not a secret. You'd think he'd put those together. But see, there's there's an insight, actually, into the way empire sees God's people, even in Xerxes' confusion. I'm going to call it the ambiguity of God's people in the world or in empire. God's people are often accepted, even celebrated for what they bring, what they have instilled into culture. Concepts such as Charity, community service, care for the orphan, care for the poor, care for the sick. Those did not exist in the ancient world. Christianity, the Jews kind of brought them in, but then Christianity after Christ really brought those in. We invented those things. The word charity is the New Testament word for grace. That's our word. No one had ever done things like that before. And so Western culture really appreciated that. But we're also considered a little weird and dangerous because of this separate identity. We don't fully assimilate. We won't fully follow empire's dogma. So there's this kind of ambiguity, this ambivalence. Let me give you a a really specific example. Back in 1994, um, some of you weren't even born yet, I know. I was uh, a freshman in college at the time. Um, Mother Teresa was invited to the uh, National Prayer Breakfast president was there, the vice president was there, first lady was there, the second lady, what you call it? the second lady was there, 
and this whole room full of people, and Mother Teresa is just lauded for her charity work. She is just extolled. She gets a standing ovation for all this stuff, and then she gives her remarks, and she makes this famous, impassioned rebuke of the president, the government, and American culture over the issue of abortion. And she ends with this very famous line where she says, don't kill your children, give them to me, I'll take them, let me have them. And the room just explodes, about two-thirds of them standing ovation for a long time. And another third, including the president, vice president, first and second ladies, arms crossed, stoic, not glaring, but you know they want to. Just And the next day, depending upon the particular editorial proclivities of the media, she was either a hero or not. That's what I'm talking about, because that's a concentrated picture of God's people and empire. And what I mean by this is even non-Christians, such as Nietzsche, you can look this up, a couple hundred years ago, or the atheist historian Tom Holland just last year in his book Dominion, more and more there's this consensus that basically says the stuff that progressive people like about Western culture is from Christianity. Human rights, individual freedom, charity, all those things, the idea of human dignity, that all comes from Christianity. See, they like our stuff, but they're not big fans of us. And there's a bit of that in Xerxes here. He's so quick to eliminate in chapter 3 a people who are just too different to be part of empire while holding in high esteem the Jews he personally knows. And that's, that's an ambiguity we live in. Well, let's wrap up the story and see what happens here with glory's frustration, verses 11 through 14. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. And Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you've begun to fall, is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. And while they were yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. So Haman goes from living the dream, living out his fantasy, it's finally happening, to this horrible command that, no, you do your fantasy for Mordecai. And as I was reading this and studying this, I wonder, was this any harder for Haman to do to Mordecai than it was back in chapter 2 for Mordecai to bow to Haman? I don't think it was. And there's a, a beautiful insight into God's grace right there when we let that rest, when we let that sink in. The pagan obeyed, whereas the faithful Jew didn't. See, there's a big difference between the gospel of Jesus Christ and this kind of religion of performance that somehow, somehow gets its roots in church world, right? God's people are not favored because we're more obedient, because we're more pliant, because we're better, because we're more righteous, because we're just better. No, Mordecai was not better than Haman. In fact, from the perspective of like God said, obey the government, from the perspective, Haman's passing, Mordecai's not. But simply because of God's sovereign love, he makes unworthy sinners like Mordecai, like me, part of his family. 
Not because we've earned it, not because our performance has been up to snuff. It hasn't. But because he chooses to love people who desperately need it. And I'm, I'm so grateful. So they have their two-man parade. Mordecai lives Haman's dream. And at the end of the day, it, it, I love how the text kind of just kind of just doesn't make a big deal out of this. Mordecai goes back to work. Haman rushed home, undone. Mordecai doesn't seem overwhelmed or overjoyed at his sudden celebrity. He does not get sucked in by the masquerade. He has no idea Haman planned to kill him that day. Contrast this with, with Haman's thirst for public approval, for public approbation. He wanted this more than anything and he didn't get it, and Mordecai got it. Mordecai doesn't care. And Haman acts as if someone has died. He's mourning, he's covering his head, he's slinking back home, embarrassed. And don't you love his sycophantic friends and wife? They turn on him. I mean, they suddenly say, what? Mordecai's a Jew? You, you can't be the Jew, bro. I mean, if I was Haman, I'd be like, um, like 24 hours ago when I was complaining about Mordecai, the Jew, and you said I should kill him, where was all this, you can't be the Jew stuff then? I love it. You're supposed to laugh. It's just so great. It's so classically predictable, isn't it? That people are like this. So Haman has reached the end of his rope. His idol has been completely destroyed. His search for worth and value through what empire says gives you worth and value has yielded him nothing but disappointment. And even before he has time to think, Xerxes' people come and, he, and grab him unprepared for Esther's second banquet. And make no mistake, he was not undone by a series of coincidences, but by the providence of the one true God. His well-constructed altar to his own ego comes crashing down because God opened the eyes of a king and made him sleepless in Susa. I want to wrap up by looking at glory's fruition now. As we've said every time, every bit of the Bible is about Jesus. Jesus himself said in Luke 24 that it's all about him, self. And so we have the warrant to look at the Old Testament and read it through the eyes of Jesus. And so I want you to look with me at Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. If you're here for Sunday school, you got to see it. You're also going to get to see it now. Speaking about Jesus, says this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God is the great king, and the man whom he delights to honor, Philippians 2 tells us, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes God happy to bring glory to Jesus, to see his son paraded around, publicly declared to be the Lord, heralded as worthy of worship. All glory is Jesus' glory. And when you are united to Jesus by faith, you share in that glory. The glory thirst in your heart. One of the things that makes Haman so uncomfortable is that we feel it, right? We, we want to feel significant. We want to feel important. We want to matter. That is a creator creating his creatures with a thirst for him. And we don't, when we don't go to him, we find other ways like Haman does. But in Jesus, that glory thirst can be completely sated. Because God loves to pour his glory on Jesus, and Jesus shares that glory with us. 
Jesus is the one whom God delights to honor. And when you are united to him by faith, you become the one whom God delights to honor. You get to live the dream of having that radical significance, that, that gravitas of identity that God gives you glory. That's what, when we say united to Christ, that means what's true of Jesus is true of us. We get his glory. Even more than that, here's a, there's another way to look at this as well. Have you ever been wronged? Have you ever been disappointed? Especially when you've done the right thing, when you've been faithful and you've honored God and it has cost you greatly. You ever been there? You know, it took years for Mordecai's service to the king to be vindicated. And so too, dear flock, part of our salvation that the New Testament talks about routinely is this forward-looking component that we call vindication. One day we will be openly acknowledged as God's adopted children. We will be openly acquitted of our crimes against him and we will openly be vindicated as you were wrong and they were right in a way that has no schadenfreude is completely holy we will somehow be vindicated and fulfilled by God's grace one day someday all the loss all the pain we have suffered will be made right and just as Haman was humiliated so too the book of Revelation tells us that the Lord Jesus will humiliate Satan and his minions. We will see our persecutors humiliated. Now, dear Christian, rest in the glory of Jesus that is yours to share in. You don't have to prove your worth to God or others. You don't have to pour your life out seeking significance. Jesus has it, and he wants to give it to you and you've embraced him by faith, it's yours. Rest in that. If you're here and, and, and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, I would, I would challenge you to look at Haman again. Haman had everything empire said made a person significant and worthy and valuable. He was prime minister. He was wealthy. He had legally beaten all of his enemies, and yet when he thought he had the chance, when the opportunity popped out, his real desires cried out, I don't yet feel significant. I don't feel as if I matter. Make everybody worship me as if I were the king. Make me feel like I'm the king. And then I can be okay. Then I'll be enough. I would challenge you to look at yourself. How much of what you do, how you relate to others is posturing to get their respect, to feel significant. Would you like to be free from performing? Would you like to simply rest in the acceptance and love of another? Then embrace Jesus as he is offered to you in the gospel. Confess him as the son of God, the savior of sinners who was raised from the dead so he can give his people his glory and acknowledge their worth. And for all of us, we're about to go to the table and before we do, I want to go back to that Persian idea of how the king's robes 
had his magic, had his power, how the king's trappings had that power, and Haman wanted to tie into that so badly. Haman is actually expressing a sacramental longing. Okay, it's a really big religious word, I know, and what it, but it's a really simple concept. It basically means, I have these internal ethereal beliefs. Can you give me something tangible to latch onto that reinforces those beliefs? That's a sacramental longing. And so too, in this table, we have one of the two sacraments of Christianity where Jesus comes to us and says, I give you something tangible so that you can then connect to my power in a real, sensible way because you're not brains in a vat. I gave you bodies, and your bodies are part of worship, and I want to connect with your body in communion. That sacramental longing we all have is about to be fulfilled for those of us who placed our faith and trust in Jesus. I rejoice in that as we prepare to come to the table. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love that is ours in your Son, Jesus. Lord, we thank you that you have chosen not only to reveal yourself but you've chosen to share your glory with your people by uniting them to your son you've chosen to fulfill our hearts in you lord we confess that so often we're looking for so many other things like haman we can laugh at him but lord deep down we are haman we want people to worship us and think we're just great father would you forgive us Would you help us to find that in you, Lord, so that rooted and anchored in you, we can love others and show them how much you love them. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would do this in Jesus' name. Amen.